Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Use the Pew Bible if you don't have your own with you and find the first Gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 22. We're in the latter part of that chapter now as I'm going to read verses 34 to the end. Next time we face one of the, well, actually it be two weeks because of Missions Conference, but the chapter coming is one of those really hard chapters. Some of the hardest things Jesus had to say are in chapter 23, but many important things remain for us to see in this gospel as we're moving now very close to the time of the cross in the life of Jesus. Listen to God's Word as I read in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, one of the Pharisees or the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang upon these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I, the son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the inspired, revealed Word of our holy God. There are times, I'm sure, when every parent, especially of young children, the parent assumes that children are totally oblivious to the passage of time. That's true if they're asked to clean their room or do something that they don't want to do, all kinds of time can just slip by before they decide they need to do that unpleasant thing. But children prove quite often that they do have an acute sense of timing better than any fine-tuned stopwatch, actually, when they want to use it. I think they prove this when a brother or a sister or a playmate is monopolizing something they want to get at, then their sense of time is very keen. You've, you've heard it when they say, she's been on the trampoline long enough, it's my turn, and they've measured it right to the second, how long that should be going on. Well, I'm not suggesting today that Jesus is either childish or bad-tempered, But after he had endured a series of three hard 
testing questions thrown at him here in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. On one very tough day in the last week of his life, he turned the tables around. And although he didn't say this in so many words, it was as if he said, now it's my turn. And I have a question for you. And when Jesus did ask his question of the debating experts, the intellects that were used to wordplay and the ability to be ready with a very facile response to almost anything, those who heard his question, the debating experts, were so confounded that the only reply they really had to it was to finalize their plot to kill him. You need to get your bearings quickly in Matthew 22 if you've not been with us or not following exactly here for the last few weeks. From verses from 15 onward in this chapter have been these three sticky questions. Some commentators call this particular day in Jesus' life the day of questions, probably either Tuesday or Wednesday of, of his last week. Now, we've spent two Sundays exploring the first of those questions, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That one had enough strong overtones for us that I felt we needed to spend extra time on it. And because I spent two weeks on that and had a rather tight calendar for dealing with things, I'm actually skipping the second question. Not that it's unimportant, but I think it's, it's a more theoretical and mystical kind of question as the Sadducees, people who didn't even believe in the resurrection, that's so interesting, they were asking a question about something they didn't even believe in, came with him with a rather complex question about a woman with many marriages and said, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection body? And very quickly, because I'm not addressing it, Jesus stated there that the final reality of heaven, our resurrection state with God in eternity, will be so great, so grand, so beyond any relationship or anything you can understand right now, that a question like that is basically ridiculous. That's the way he answered it. He pointed us to the grandeur of what was to come in our final state with God and left it with some mystery. Now, the third question is the one we look at this morning, and that is this one posed by a Pharisee, which is the greatest commandment in all of the law of God? And after we explore the answer to that, which will be the first point this morning, we'll see Jesus turn it around and pose his question, one which mystified them, but it must not be allowed to baffle you because you need to answer this question that our Lord asked. It's vitally important that you have answered it. Therefore, in our text, as I'm addressing it or dividing the subject today, verses 34 to 40 have that third question of the Pharisees. 41 to 46 has Jesus' question and then I'm going to add on the application to you, how you must answer this question that he posed. So first of all, what is the greatest command in all of the Old Testament? That's the third and final question that was asked of Jesus. Now, I thought I would rephrase it with a, a little bit of a modern spin on it, and maybe it would, it would just uh, ring a little bit 
louder to you somehow. And that is, if we could rephrase the question, Jesus was being asked, if you wrote a summary of God's law on the back of a business card, what would it say? Think about that. Many of you have business cards. Here's mine. They're probably the same size as mine, three and a half by two inches. I measured because I didn't know before. Three and a half by two. Now, if you have to write a letter, if you want to write a love letter to someone on the back of a business card, you better be concise. You'd better have a few pungent sentences that really say it all. If you're going to write your last will and testament, boy, I hope you don't have much to leave because you can't list too many possessions in that space. But that's actually what Jesus was being asked, to communicate the vital essence of the whole message that God had spoken in his law in a little tiny space, in one commandment. What is the essence of it? What's the nub of it, Jesus? What is the greatest commandment found in the law? Now, we know the law here has, a, has its larger meaning. There are times when we, we say law in relation to the Bible, and we mean commandments as opposed to, say, psalms or prophecy. But there are times when we also use the word law to mean all of the Old Testament, and that's the way in which I believe it's being used here. If you take everything God said in the Bible that they had, of course, that was an Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. What is the greatest? Jesus, put it on the back of a business card for me, and I'm going to be very interested to hear what you say. This this man who posed the question was an Old Testament expert. You can believe they, they brought their top gun to do this. This man probably had three PhDs. He was probably the best debater, the most knowledgeable Old Testament scholar. And the thinking was we will put him up against the unschooled rabbi from, from Galilee, and we know what we expect to hear, and If he says something off track, we'll just shred him. And we'll also have evidence against him. That was the thinking. Well, we know today that all portions of the Word of God are inspired and valuable. It's very obvious that that God gave us his entire Word, every bit of it, even the genealogies. Even these sections that describe the implements that, that used in the tabernacle, even the, the parts that describe in, in intimate detail the borders and boundaries given to the 12 tribes of Israel, things that you would come upon in your daily devotions and say, well, I can't get anything out of this. God gave His whole Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But I don't think any of us would debate the fact that different Scriptures have different value, different ways of of coming through with big principles or things that really rivet us in God's teaching to us. I don't imagine any of you would contend that the gospel of John or the wonderful letter of Romans, for example, are somehow lesser in usefulness or weight than the prophecy of Ezra or the little book of Nahum, if you can even find it or the book of Ecclesiastes. Those are inspired books, but they have a different weight. And similarly, with doctrines of the Bible, we say this, and sometimes people don't seem to get this right, the idea that there are absolutely essential 
doctrines that we could not possibly dispense with, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the atonement of the blood of Christ on the cross on our behalf. But we come to other doctrines that have an importance. They are also inspired, but there's maybe some room for debate, you know. What's the right mode of baptism? What are all the right details that are going to take place in the return of Christ? Should a woman wear a headscarf and so on, you know? And these are things that are in God's Word, but they're of different weight, and people forget that. And, and one of the great problems is when you make the secondary doctrines as if they were primary. Now, the Pharisees had spent centuries in this whole discussion, and they sifted, they analyzed, they processed. They probably had charts written out. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did have all the different commandments of God and promises of God, and they had thought about and, and debated for, and written books about which ones are more primary and which ones are more secondary. And they'd actually counted the commandments. It was counted out. 613 commandments was their count. 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And they then categorized those. 248 were positive and 365 were prohibitions or negative in their thrust. And then they would sit down, you know, and say, well, of the negative ones, which one's the most negative and positive? Which one's most positive? And you can see the scholars having a lot of fun here. And that's the background from which Jesus was being challenged. What's the greatest, Jesus? What are you going to say? It was a test. And Jesus responded, apparently with no hesitation. And he quoted Scripture as he did it. First Deuteronomy 6, when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You may not know that the first part of what he was quoting was a, a word that was spoken in regular synagogue and temple worship and even in an Israelite's personal devotions. It's a, it's a call, in a sense, to God called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Shema, it was called. If you're aware of, of customs that arose in Israel, there was a custom where very devout Israelite men had little tiny boxes that they would actually, it was actually maybe the size of a matchbox, that they would, would actually have bound to their forehead, and in it would be certain scripture. This scripture was in there. And there would, there would be the custom, and you see it today in very orthodox Jewish homes. If you ever uh, go to see Fiddler on the Roof, uh, I saw a production of it not that long ago, and, and as the uh, the Jewish people in that Russian setting went in and out of the house on stage. They would touch the doorpost of the house, and maybe, what were they doing? Well, they were touching the little box on the doorpost called a mezuzah that had a few scraps of Scripture in it, and this was one of them. This was Scripture that was very fundamental to the life of God's people. And what could possibly be more important than loving God with every fiber of your being, the emotion of your heart, the wellspring of your soul, the fixed determination of your will, all centering, focusing, and uniting in one purpose to celebrate who and what God is 
and to enjoy and exalt Him. That's what we're here for this morning. God wants to possess us. He does not want to simply be a, a, you know, a, a, a polite sideline of your interest. You know, if you lift, list what your life is all about or what's most important to you, you'd say, my home, my husband, my, you know, my car, my job, my grandchildren. And, oh, yes, God. No, God says, I have to top the list. And it's not enough to have simply a bare belief in him to say, oh, yes, I believe in God. There are many people who think that summarizes Christianity. Well, the, the Scripture comes back and says, for example, in James 2.19, that even the demons believe in God. But demons are not swept off their feet with awe-inspiring love and heart joyful worship of God. Now, the Scripture says we're not born with this all-consuming love. In fact, quite the opposite. We're born disliking God. We dislike much of what He stands for. We try to evade His commands. We shrug them off. We don't think of them for long periods of time, and then we bounce back all sorrowful and say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Take me back. I'll be yours forever. We don't love God with our hearts and souls and minds and strength in our natural selves. This is not something we come into this world able to do in an easy fashion, if at all. And in fact, we hide from the blazing holiness of God, and we're ashamed of sinful thoughts and acts that displease Him. How are we to do this? Loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, the totality of our being. Well, I think 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 has the way that, that points the path for us. In 1 John 4, 10, we read, this is love, the essence of love. Not that we loved God, because John would put in parenthesis, we did not. But He loved us and sent His Son to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, the love of God is something you meet really for the first time. You encounter it. You see what it is at the cross of Christ. And there you realize you have been loved first. And that becomes your ability to love God. When you bow before that love, you understand that that God actually brings alive and resurrects in you a capacity to cherish Him and honor Him and respect Him and adore Him. It's a radical makeover. You know, we're really into these radical makeovers, all these TV shows where they go in and take a home and looks like a slum, and then they come in in 48 hours with 48 people and turn it inside out, and everybody goes, wow, look at that. Well, that's what God does a radical makeover of people who could not love him, of people who, in fact, ran away from him by their natural tendencies because they could not really love him until they are at peace with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when they trust in that work that Christ did on God's behalf at the cross, 
Again, 1 John 4, verse 19 says, we begin to love him because he first loved us. That's the arithmetic of it. That's how we enter into this love. In fact, in Galatians 5, when the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that is the characteristics of a Christian's life, when the Holy Spirit begins to change that person and and degree by degree gradually starts remaking them in the image of Christ, you remember that list? Many of you have probably memorized Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. And even if you haven't memorized the whole list, you probably know that the first one of those fruits of the Spirit is love. When God does a radical makeover, He makes it possible for you to love Him. But beyond that, Going on with what Jesus said, the the other commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, you see, springs out of the first. When we begin to respond to the love of God in Christ and that love begins to take hold of us and we take little baby steps towards God, we start to have another change in us and that is how we see other people. We don't simply see other people in terms of they're being servants to us and our petty complaints and demands. And are they being nice to us right now? And are they satisfying us? We start to look at them with something we couldn't look at them with before, compassion. We begin to see them with God's eyes. We begin to see that they're broken like we are and weak like we are. And that, yes, maybe they're doing something very offensive to me right now but I can see that there are reasons for that. And I can have the compassion of my heavenly Father so that I don't have to just have that knee-jerk reaction to spitefully hate a neighbor or ignore a sister as coldly as I did before. You see, this response of Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself, is actually a business card size summation of the Ten Commandments, even though the Ten Commandments aren't quoted in it. Because stop and think a minute. Didn't you learn that the Ten Commandments are structured into two halves? And the first group of the commandments are about what? Love and honor for God. And the second group of commandments are about, consequentially, your behavior to other people in the world, commands against lying and dishonoring parents, murder, adultery, covetousness. You see, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus was indeed telling us the key to it all. The nail driven into the wall on which the Old Testament could literally hang. The Ten Commandments can hang from this nail. Love for a living God that is encountered, we know, from our larger perspective since that time, by meeting the love of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a love that remakes us. It acts almost like a tsunami wave. You've heard as these tsunamis have come into Southeast Asia, how the people just can't, they've never experienced anything like the wave that just comes into these low-lying villages and just sweeps everything away in front of it. Well, that's a negative thing, but it's very positive when the love of God comes in and sweeps in its wake all of our bitterness and all of our warfares and all of our disaffections with God and with other people and remakes us in its tide. 
And so Jesus rightly answered that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself is the totality of the Old Testament written on the back of a business card. The Old Testament in a nutshell. And these people knew he had answered well. They certainly did not condemn his response. Well, now the tables turn. And in the second place this morning, we want to see with the list of three devious questioners having been exhausted, Jesus now has a question, as I implied before. He poses his, and it's only fair, I suppose. They thought, all right, we've peppered him with questions. We'll listen to his. As he asks, and we see in this second division of our text this morning, his question, and stated easily it is, what is your opinion of Christ? What is your opinion of Christ? He put a finer edge on it. He asked it a second way and, and said in verse 42, whose son will the Christ be? He knew what they would say to that. There was only one thing they could say. And the answer came back, why, of course, everybody knows. The son of David. By the way, Matthew's gospel emphasizes quite a bit that Jesus had already been called son of David I don't, at least six or eight specific times in verse 20, or chapter 21 as he was coming into Jerusalem. 21.9 has the people saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were saying that to him. They were calling him the Messiah. At least some of the people were, not necessarily these Pharisees and experts. But he had been called son of David. That's what they thought of when they thought of their Messiah. And so when everybody thought about the expected Messiah, what did they think about? More or less a reincarnation of a man who would come in the historic mold of David as a national savior, a courageous king, a general. They needed a general, they saw, because what, what situation were they in? The hated Romans were occupying their country. They would have to be driven out. And it would take a general to lead a, an insurrection to do that. David was able to do that. Think of you know, the situation that David inherited. The reign of Saul was very, very shaky and tenuous. David arose, and, and the common people came around him. They saw the justice of his cause, and they, they rallied to him. And he led bands of warriors to do wonderful things, defeating the powerful Philistines with their gigantic warriors. And, well, it's a David that we want, a David with shiny armor, a David on a white horse, a David with a big sword. And he'll be able to raise up this King David cloned for a new generation. You see, they weren't saying he had to be divine. And as a matter of fact, the experts who study Old Testament expectation about the Messiah say, maybe to your surprise, they didn't necessarily look for a divine Messiah. They looked for King David. Nobody said King David was divine. He was just the greatest king they'd ever had. And they just said, give us King David back with a sword and a crown of gold. Well, Jesus is raising or following up on this answer about the Messiah being the son of King David when he puts before us the most important question in all the world. Who is 
Jesus Christ. Who is the Christ? And he uses an Old Testament text, the 110th Psalm. I wonder if you know that the 110th Psalm is the passage of Scripture quoted more times in the New Testament than any other. Some 27 times in the New Testament. There are many different passages that are commonly quoted, and some of them, three, four, half a dozen, none anywhere near Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New. And it is the psalm, we have what we call messianic psalms, because they point to what Messiah will be like. Well, Psalm 110 is just about the premier messianic psalm. Now, here's what Jesus was doing. He took this psalm about the Messiah, the the son of David, the descendant of David, and he was turning their expectations inside out. And I believe he knew quite well that what he said here would not be understood until after the cross and after the resurrection. But he said it, and the disciples certainly remembered it. Here's the logic of what he was teaching in verses 43 to 45. If David, the most revered ancestor you can think of, the greatest king you ever had, the the George Washington of your nation, if this admirable man who literally is the mold and the prototype for the Messiah called his far-off descendant who was going to come Lord, then who is the greater man? You see, he was saying normally you would look back on your ancestors and you would praise them as they praised David. Oh, David, nobody comes close to David. But here's Jesus saying David, who, by the way, is the indisputable author of the 110th Psalm. No dispute about that. David, writing by the Holy Spirit, Jesus adds, literally with the mouth of of God's Spirit speaking through him, David prophetically said that his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson would be L-O-R-D with capital letters at the level of divinity. Now, that had to stump some people. They'd never thought about it that way. How could anybody be greater than David? Unless... Our ideas about a Messiah have been inadequate. And he's not simply going to be a a great military commander rallying the troops and, and driving out Rome. Perhaps Jesus is saying this great, 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 great grandson of David is going to be a totally unique person who comes from God because he was God. And if you think we're just reading that in, then look at the additional evidence that's here. Because in Psalm 110, it is quoted here in verse 44, the Lord God, that is, God said to my Lord, this is David speaking, David is saying, the Lord Most High God said to my Lord, not me, he didn't mean himself, he meant this ancestor of his, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, in the ancient world, they understood better than we do because we don't live that much with kings and monarchy. But if you sat at the right hand of a king, 
That was the highest place of honor there was. And in fact, it wasn't just an honor. It probably meant you were delegated the second place of authority in the whole kingdom. That's where the crown prince sat, who would be the next king. And everybody knew that. Now, not even David ever claimed that he sat at the right hand of the high throne of the Most High God in heaven. David would never have said that about himself. He didn't have those delusions of grandeur. But that's what he did say about his descendant who would come. Jesus would sit at the right hand of God. Now, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 says to us that God does not share his glory with any mere mortal. And therefore, if someone sits at the right hand of God, the logical deduction to make from biblical theology is that the one who sits next to God is like God and even is God. And you notice that when Jesus had raised this very logical question that they had never seen before in the Old Testament, they had poured over and and looked at with magnifying glasses, what is your opinion of the Christ? Whose son is he and what does... What logical conclusion do you draw from that? Matthew twenty two forty six doesn't say a loud debate broke out. It says nobody dared ask him any more questions. Their mouths were silenced. The religious debaters had come into that day with their, their best experts. It seemed like all the advantages were on their side to win any debate, and they all lost and their mouths were clamped shut. You see, ladies and gentlemen, in the third place today, we have met the question to end all questions. Who is the Christ of God? David, speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, was the first man in history ever to cry out in so many words, Jesus is Lord The one who comes after me will be greater than me. He may be born in this world as a a pauper, a nobody. He may never have gold on his head as long as he walks around in this world, but he's a greater king than I am. That's what David was saying. And indeed, it was true. While on earth, Jesus was despised, harassed, rejected. They spit in his face. They drew blood from his back. They unjustly arrested him illegally tried him, and brutally crucified him. But God reversed all that. And Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of God, is at the right hand of God right now, this moment. Not someday, right now. He is ruling at God's right hand. Remember Stephen, the first martyr who died in the book of of Acts? the early church martyr. Stephen was stoned to death. I'm sure some of the stones had already struck him, but no fatal blow yet when he was feeling the bruises and trying to dodge, but unable to dodge all the stones. He saw a vision, and he cried out and told his vision in Acts 7, 56. It says the dying Stephen cried out and said, Look! I, I, I don't imagine he thought everybody else could see it, but maybe... In in his wonderment, he thought they could. Look, I see heaven opened. 
and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You see, Stephen didn't say, I see heaven opened, and I see what hundreds of churches will mistakenly put in front of their sanctuaries, the rest of Christianity, a wooden or metal cross with a dead body hanging on it. He didn't say, I see a dead Jesus. I see Jesus standing, ruling in the place of authority at the right hand of God. And then he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He spoke to the highest authority in heaven and said, receive my spirit. You see why the battle lines are always drawn? The battle lines around the the outermost fence of Christianity is the battle line for the deity of Christ. That's the one they're always battering against. That's the one the whole idiotic Da Vinci project a few years ago was trying to tear down insidiously. Oh, Jesus isn't really divine. He's just a man. We know this and this and this. And he really got married and had a baby and died somewhere. And, you know, he's not divine. And so on the basis of utter nonsense, people say, oh, I guess Jesus isn't divine. Well, that grand doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ as the Christ of God cannot be surrendered. It cannot be compromised. It is the north star of Christianity. Without it, every other doctrine that we have is meaningless. Now, real quickly, let me ask some questions here to bring this matter home. Are you still like these questioners, someone here? Are you like these people in Matthew 22 coming to Christ with your clever questions? And you think, oh, I will hold God at my arm's length because I have a question he hasn't answered. I, oh, he's never told me why there's suffering in the world or why this family member of mine had to suffer this way. I've got the tough question he can't answer. Well, your tough questions about suffering are valid questions. No one would deny. But I tell you that every one of them resolves in the tremendous suffering of the Son of God on your behalf. And the Niagara of the love of God poured out at the cross of Jesus answers every question about every suffering that we undertake. And your mutterings of disbelief and your arguments that you think are so staunch can't even be heard in the thunder of that Niagara Falls of the love of God. Another question, if you're a person who says, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, well, that's wonderful. Do you know that discipleship to him draws you into an all-consuming privilege of loving God with everything you have and everything that you are? The songwriter said it demands our soul and our life and our all. And a final question. Have you understood that receiving the love of God in Christ actually mandates that you pass it on? Your little life is is too small a container to bottle up that love. You're mandated to be a channel through whom that love will go out to cherish and humbly serve other broken people who are made in the image of God. The question that ends all questions in all of history confronts us here. What is your opinion of Jesus the Christ. Have you been struck by amazement at him? Do you know that he was broken and died on that cross 
because of your shame and your sin? Do you know that if you have trusted in Him, you, along with Him, broke open your eternal spiritual tomb and you rose with Him in a new life that has no limit placed upon it and that physical death is is really just a blip on the radar screen for everyone who belongs to Him? Do you bow before Him today and call Him the Christ of God with uncompromised devotion and wholehearted joy? You see, it's not up to you to decide, will Jesus be the Lord? He is the Lord. He is. Whether you know it or not, and you can either fight against that historic fact or come and be transformed in the breathtaking love which God pours out into the lives of those who trust in His Son crucified, resurrected, ascended, and ruling. When you do that, you can begin to love God back and love others with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Praise be to the God who loved us with everything He had. Father, we ask as we come closer to that time of year when the cross is so much before us, overwhelm us with what you did there. We love only because you first loved us. Thank you for Jesus who made this so plain even before he went to that cross. Minister to us in all our weakness with this torrent of your grace and your loving kindness for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.